Friends, how we doing? Good? That's very good. Now, if this is one of your first times at a pastor's Q&A, welcome. We, uh, we used to do these about once a month. And then when Nino was prepping and getting ready for Calgary, uh, we lapsed. Lapsed is a better. We just kept lapsing. Yeah. Oh. We, we ceased, we sauced, we sauced, we sauced, stopped. I don't know. We, we quit doing them. And now they're back. Back again. Pastor's Q&A is back. Tell a friend. You have to be a late 90s kid to pick up that reference. Um, what are you doing over there? I'm pre-working. Pre-working. <clears throat> He's getting ready. Uh, the way that we're going to do this uh, actually um, is going to be, because uh, we're recording this, uh, we had uh, some people ask, um, both here uh, but also on the gram, friends of ours that are in Calgary, uh, if we would record this and be able to put it on Basecamp um, for our friends in Calgary as well. And uh, I said, that'd be great. So the problem with that is that usually we don't record these. Um, so Matt and I are going to try extra hard to not be heretical. High five. <laughs> uh, and don't ask any hard questions. No hard questions. Just kidding. Softball. Softball. Ask anything easy. Softball. <laughs> Underhand throw. Um, no, just kidding. Uh, but also what we would ask you to do is if you have a question, actually, if you could use the mic uh, because um, then it actually would get picked up on a recording. And if not, we would just have to say it again. So if you're like, I'm uncomfortable with that. I will just take your question and say it back to you to make sure that's what you're actually asking, and then we'll answer. But if you're like, I'm okay standing in front of a microphone and, and asking, then you could do that. Dealer's choice, whatever you decide. So um, <clears throat> do you want to pray for us? And then we'll just open the floor for any questions. Sure. Thank you, Lord, for everything that we've just uh, walked through, for the richness of your word and for the goodness um, that you display for us in the gospel. And so I pray that this would also be now a fruitful way to just end our time together, to ask those questions that are, uh, that are just burning uh, on our minds and our hearts. And I pray that you keep us from speculation, that we might ground uh, all of our, our lives, including our, our answers and even the questions that we think are important. Um, just yeah, reset our compass here to true north, which is the, the truth of your word in Christ. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, great. Anybody want to be our numero uno? Ask some questions. I can start. You can start. People. You have a question for I yourself? Do. For you. Oh, for me. Dun, dun, is this okay? Dun. Uh, this is something I've been stewing over all week and reading about. Oh, man. Let's hear it. So, Chinese people. Yeah. People in China? Shem, Ham, or Japheth. What? Noah's three sons, right? We're all descended from Noah and his three sons. Yeah. So, Southeast Asia, Shem, Ham, or Japheth? I mean, it's got to be one of the three, right? And I did not know the answer to this until I looked it Is up. Is your question, which of the descendants of yeah. Noah come? Ended up in Asia. Oh, I Do you have an answer? Well, I think so. I had to look it up. 
for, for you saying we're not going to do anything <laughs> hypothetical. <laughs> what? Chinese people, which of the three sons? What do you What do you think? Well, I have so zero. I've, I've been reading Shem. Into this. I've been reading Shem, but there's some potential Japheth. I was looking at maps, and it's like they they definitely cross pollinate sort of in that area. <laughs> <clears throat> what a fascinating question. Yeah. Which, I know which it's means one that, of them. That like Chinese people might be at least partially Semitic. Shemites, right? What a question. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. N no one knows. The Lord knows. Yet, he, I would just point you to Deuteronomy 29, 29. Mm. The mysterious things belong to the Lord. And that's one of the mysterious things. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. That's a great thing. If you're a small group leader, by the way, to have in your back pocket. <laughs> someone asks a really difficult question. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The mysterious things belong to the Lord. That's good. I don't know. I don't know. Yes, sir. Yeah. Come on up, my friend. All right. My question is, um, if Jesus, well, because Jesus is fully man, why does he appear to lack certain qualities that are common to man, such as sin nature or original sin? And if he's fully God, why does he appear to lack qualities that are divine, such as omniscience, omnipotent, or omnipresence, that kind of thing. Um, and then also, if Jesus is uncreated, how did his body come into being, or was that part of it created? Tripartite question. Mm. Which of those do you want to start answering? What was the first one again? Uh, his sin nature, right? Human qualities, yeah, and and so we might ask, what does it mean to be truly human? Because that's what he is. And to go to your definition of what is truly human, we go back to the garden before the fall. Before the fall, and so yeah, um, so he's made like us in every respect, except in having uh, the corruption that we inherit from Adam, and therefore uh, Jesus can be tempted in every way, just as we are. But that, imply, that, that is based on the definition of what it means to be truly human, which Christ is. So, for example, you can be tempted with uh, good things, to misuse good things. Um, so, for example, we see him tempted with food, um, food and water, right? Power, yeah. Um, even, like, sex drive, uh, wanting to get married and have a family, which was not God's will for him but it would be God's will generally for humans. So he could be tempted uh, to, to disregard his father's plan for him specifically in that. Um, but like, there's certain things that you would have to be a sinner to be tempted with. And, and a shocking example that I, I should come up with a better one, but like Jesus was never tempted to kill the person he had raped to get rid of the evidence or the witness. Like, you would have to be down in a certain level of corruption to be tempted. Or, for example, Jesus was never tempted with lesbianism <laughs> because he was a dude. Uh, and because <laughs> there would be a certain amount of corruption that, yes, he could be tempted sexually in the sense of uh, marriage, but not, uh, but not in, in terms of those types of inordinate affections. So when the scriptures say, tempted in every way, and, and just as we are, but without sin. Doesn't mean he was tempted to check his iPhone. Facebook well, profile when exactly. he woke up in the morning. 
So what it means is every temptation that is core to what it means to be human, um, he, he can be tempted with and was. Yeah, and that's a really important distinction is that Christ, though being fully man, doesn't have an inherited sin nature or zero corruption, right? And so that is a very vital point of what does it mean for him to be human. Um, and we stand on the shoulders of, I mean, the Council of Chalcedon, Luther, Calvin, I mean, all these men that have written entire books on that very topic, defending the idea that Christ does not have, uh, sorry, that Christ does not have uh, a corrupted sin nature, which he inherited. That was the first question. Yeah. Other question? Yeah. Why does he appear to lack divine qualities? Yeah. Do you mean during his earthly life and ministry? Because presently, uh, it's a different. Well, and I guess presently, if Jesus is human still, he's still man, One of the most shocking and crazy things about the incarnation is that Christ took to himself that which he was not and dwelt among us, right? So that had never happened. And so in that, what we believe as Christians, what the Bible teaches as confirmed as well through church councils is that when that happened, Christ did not lose any of that which he was. He didn't become God minus something, but God plus that which he was not. So what we see in the incarnation is Godhood veiled, so the interesting thing in and through Jesus' ministry and life is that for most of the time, he chooses not to tap into his divine knowledge, power, and those things. But from time to time, he does throughout the New Testament. He knows things that there's no, there's no way you could know that. And it's not like we don't read in the, in, in the Bible, God the Father told God the Spirit to go tell Jesus this thing was true. He just, mm, nope, I just know that. I don't want to get into that yet. With Nathaniel. Yet. There you go. The, sitting under the tree. Really? They're getting. Uh, or also, uh, when there's the Mount of Transfiguration, Christ kind of pulls back the veil to reveal that which is true about who he actually is. The way that I explain it oftentimes is that with my children, I fight on their level. Because if not, I would just kick them and they'd die. Right? Like, it, it would be a very fast fight. Uh, very, very quickly. So I don't fight them on a human level as if you're coming into my house to try to hurt me because that would immediately kill them. Likewise, I, so I show restraint in that. And that's what Jesus does throughout his entire life and ministry. He shows this restraint because he could at any moment demonstrate all these things and tap into them. Um, a really great chapter to read, actually, if you want to explore that a little bit more. Um, J.I. Packer has a book called Knowing God. Chapter five is all about the incarnation of Christ. Uh, and he elucidates that really, really beautifully uh, in, his, in his little book, Knowing God. Um, and so, yeah, so we see that he doesn't lose any of those things, but it's veiled and masked where he does tap into those things. Now, if you're looking at something like omnipresence, yes, that would be something that, I mean, Jesus has a, took on a human body. So how exactly does that work within the Godhead? The mysterious things belong to the Lord. But we do know that even now, Christ has a resurrected body. So 
it's not like he has a body and then he has like a spirit that floats somewhere. Like him as the second person of the Trinity is always embodied. And so it, how exactly that works, I have absolutely no idea. But that it works, we know. Because, but for example, works, we know. Jesus says, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh-huh. And then he says, don't let anybody fool you as if, I'm, as if I've returned. Yeah. Right? Like, That's oh, right. he's over in this inner room over here. That's right. No, no, no. I'm not here till I'm here. And you'll know because it'll be like lightning stretching across the whole. Like, you can't miss it. So he's both not here and here. That's right. That, so it's like, this isn't just that we don't understand it. It's the scripture lays out. He's present with us always, and yet not here yet. And his second coming is very often, the Greek word used is presence, parousia. But yeah, so that's interesting. Because he still is divine in, in his nature. And that's the crazy thing, too. If we think about how God, God the Spirit, through the inter, intermediary work of the Son, God the Spirit now indwells all of us. And in a way, the scriptures also speak as if that is the spirit of Christ who is in us. Mm-hmm. Now, spirit is distinct person, personhood from Christ. And yet, by his intermediary work inside of us, it is as if Jesus is with us, dwelling in the halls of our hearts through the spirit in us. Which is a fascinating reality. And so, yeah, so I think there are things we can know that are very clear, and then there are other things that we see just with greater levels of um, clarity or, or unclarity. That's not a word. Nope. <laughs> clarity and obscurity, that's it. There are things that are we see in a mirror dimly yeah. that one day will not be. Here's another helpful text. Let me hear you. John 10. <clears throat> and so the question is, does this sound like a human or God? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is like, that's, those are the questions the early church had to try to answer, right? Uh, he says, I lay, this is starting in verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So that, that does not sound like any human I know. No. And yet I know that God does not die. <laughs> so it's just like, this is, one of the, these, this is one of the texts that the early church looks at and goes, okay, first of all, should, we should answer, is he human? If the answer is yes, he's clearly human. He hungers, he thirsts, he was born, he can die. Okay, is he God? Yeah, is he God? And the answer is clearly yes, through very many texts, even like this one. Who has authority to just take up their own life with their own authority after death? Um, and then the mystery is how do those two things come together? And the answer is uh, one, <clears throat> one person, two natures, yeah. without one subtracting from the other. Or intermingling between right. the two. Yeah. There's no like bleeding between them. Yeah. And there was a there was a third question. Did we get to the third one? Yeah, like I guess Jesus is uncreated, but I guess his body was created. Yes. Uh, his human Jesus nature. Body, how it is it created. Yeah. Yeah. The incarnation means something is new. And that is his human nature. That part I 
Right. But his being, his person, is uncreated. Because there's not, there's, it's not uh, one being two persons or something like that. His, he's one person with two natures. Thank you, systematic theology. <laughs> Is there somewhere else that you would suggest for further reading that people go to process through that other than G.I. Packers knowing God? Yeah, Philippians 2 is good. Yeah, Philippians 2. Yeah, just in general, I think every Christian should have some uh, theology book on their shelf. A, a decent one would be Wayne Grudem's systematic theology mm-hmm. and just to even just refresh on some of these things maybe read just a little section at a time grapple with it go look up the, the proof texts that are offered and and see um if you think that those texts support that doctrine and and gain a little bit of clarity yeah and then if you're really interested in history you could go read all about the council of chalcedon where this was very highly debated and uh, you can see all the arguments both ways. Uh, and uh, just pray through it as you walk through. That's one of the greatest things actually about studying church history is it prevents you from falling into a lot of erroneous errors by being like, wait, does this mean that? You're like, no, 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 wait, I remember the Council of Chalcedon. I remember one person, two natures. So uh, though I'm tempted to look at this and say, no, that's not true. I'm like, no, I know as Christians, this is what we believe to be true about what we have seen in God's word. But it doesn't mean that you take church history and kind of trump that over God's word, but rather it should drive us back into God's word because at the end of the day, we are sola scriptura. Is God's word above man's word, tradition, councils, those things? Because they have and do get things wrong. And so we want to constantly use that to draw us back into God's word where we're studying, reflecting, meditating on. Um, But it will keep you from falling into various heresies that have come along over uh, over the last 2,000 years. And a good book on that one, uh, Church History, just in one volume, which is something to look for, that it's not like an eight-volume tome or something, would be Bruce Shelley's Church History in Plain Language. It's accessible. It's one volume. It is thick, but it's a good read. Also, Samantha, what was the one that you found earlier today from G3 for Church History? Sketches from Church History. So it's a is a homeschool curriculum. No. There is one on generations as well. Thank you, my love. Other questions? Um, so we were just in this passage today taking communion, 1 Corinthians 11. Yeah. I just wanted to go down just a little bit farther to verse 29 and 30, where it says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So is that a spiritual death, weak, and illness? Is that a physical one? Is that a warning that we should be taking seriously? How does that play out, manifest? Whatever. I think this is just like Ananias and Sapphira that actually literally there's like 
there is a judgment from God that has connected with this church over the issue of communion. I don't, like, I don't think, for example, like, we, we took the, uh, the elements all together. We, we always do. But, I mean, it says wait for one another. I don't think it means the exact second or moment that everyone has to have the cracker, like, landing on the tongue at the same time. This church is, like, literally, I mean, this church has issues. So this is the same church that celebrates... Well, everybody's got issues. I'm talking about Corinth in particular. Everybody's got issues. We all have issues. If you're looking for the perfect church, go somewhere else. Yeah. I don't think we have these issues, though, where, where we see our, we have such a high view of God's grace, so-called uh, high view of God's grace, that we would actually celebrate a man sleeping with his stepmom because look how much we can tolerate. And, and that we're not like, that we don't have our service like Mondays at three where people who have white collar jobs or retirees or people who are managers who can just check out of work early can come and get drunk on communion wine and then everybody has to work till five shows up at 5.30 and it's all gone. And it's like, that is so not communion. It is the, and so even when he says uh, eating and drink without being mindful of the body, I actually think that's somewhat of a, a, like a double meaning. Um, mindful of the body of Christ, yes, but also mindful of the body of Christ. Like, you need to understand that this links to Christ's sacrifice and then then live that out in the actual body of Christ, which in this case means the local church, the people that you are taking the wine from so that the, you can get drunk and they have nothing. Um, I think there's, there's a couple of meanings that are intended there because the, the body can go both ways. And in this case, it's that they're not being mindful of each other. But in so doing, they ignore the, the significance of Christ's sacrifice, that, that he died for these people. They should also come and enjoy. So, yeah, I think that's just physical sickness and death in this case. And I think the part of that is key, right? Because if you were reading this, you'd say, you'd be terrified to ever take communion ever again. Because if you, if you were going to properly know yourself, you'd say, well, then I can never take communion because I would eat it and die. And yet what you're doing it and taking it wrongly is by not remembering the gospel. That's how you take it improperly. So when you come and you confess sin and then partake of communion, that's the goal is that you realize apart from Christ's body being broken, blood being poured out, I am dead in my sins and all I deserve is the wrath of God upon me. Physically, I deserve to die because of sin, which we all do. That's why we die and grow old and have our backs start hurting when we're in our mid-30s when we just wake up from the middle of the night and then, and then die. That's me. That's me this week. And then, uh, <laughs> and then uh, we deserve to stand before God and face his judgment. And yet, uh, so that's how we do it in a proper way is by reminding ourselves and being remembered of the gospel as we gather to partake. Um, I think there is, so I, and I think that's right, 100% straight reading of the text, everything Matt said. And then I think there's another means by which we can also, as Christians, by partaking improperly of communion, we can so harden ourselves spiritually, where every time we partake of communion, it, it's done in an improper way, which might not kill us in the moment, like we may not get COVID or die because of something disease X or whatever. Um, but 
with our souls, we could become more and more hardened to the things of God with each passing, partaking of communion because we're not repenting of sin and remembering Christ's sacrifice for us. So I think there, there tertiarily could be a um, spiritual component, whereas primary first order of what it's saying is that's the reason why some of you are sick and some have died. I'm super thankful that that's not a promise, but a description. Ooh, yeah, Some of you me have too. died. Me too. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was in a, in a context this summer where uh, there was a group of people who, who came together for a certain event that was not an inherently churchy or Christian event. It was, so it was a wedding and uh, communion was given to every single person present without much explanation and with no warning. And so, I was just, I, I was like, I'm out. Uh, but I was just took that time. To, Could you imagine if people just started falling over dead in the I wedding? I was praying for people. I was like, Lord, crazy. I just feel like there's probably people here drinking condemnation on themselves yeah. because they're not even linking this to a Christian profession at all yeah. or the body and blood of Christ, except for they quickly read uh, like a very short few verses here. And so that's why like we do actually, you'll notice what we call fence the supper here at trails where we try to say, Hey, if you're not a Christian, please don't because we do take this seriously. But also that's also why we started having it where you come and also get it uh, because we know of a couple of instances in people's lives where they're under church discipline. And we want to make sure that we see someone coming and we're able to go say, uh, Hey bud, this is not for you because we also don't want them in unrepentant sin to be eating and drinking condemnation on themselves because they're living in sin, but professing to not be living in sin by wanting to partake of communion. And unless they actually have that day, which we pray they would, repent in that moment of their sin and be returning back to the things that they once knew, if that's the case, then praise God, you should have communion. But if not, if you're still living in unrepentant sin that a church has brought you under church discipline for and you're wanting confirmation of your faith without the means by which God has given that in and through a local church, then you're eating and drinking condemnation on yourself, which we wouldn't want anyone to do because we care about you. And so, yeah, that's an important thing. In a former church, I was asked if I would help serve communion and I had done that a couple of times, and I was a younger Christian, and then I realized that I had like sinned that week when I was asked to help serve again, and then I didn't, I didn't even actually go to church. I told them, no, I can't, because I would be unworthy, and it's like that, I now look at that and go, that is not the point of the warning texts. So the point of being cautioned about communion is that you might, as a Christian, repent of that sin and then come to the table. It's actually an invitation. And that's how, for example, even we would just study the book of Jonah. If God like thunders from heaven and says, repent or die, he could have just killed you. The fact that he gave you a warning is an invitation to repent and a sign of his grace. And it's actually an invite. So that's a a common misconception. Like, oh, if I'm not, if I'm not awesome, uh, like, or if I messed up this week, then I should take, I should take a month off. No, no, you should repent and then come to the table as a Christian. Exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. Exactly.
just <laughs> saying <laughs> it. <laughs> it was just <laughs> that was meant to be a joke, but that's fine. Um, so well, follow up then. If the main way to make sure that you're taking it properly is to be mindful of the gospel, why? Like, I do agree with this, but why do we, like, what would be the biblical basis for saying that we should not take it alone at home? We should only take it when we are a part of the body. For example, like, through COVID, there was a lot of churches who were just saying, go home, take it whenever, you're fine. And I know that we don't really agree with that, but what is the biblical basis if we're just saying that being mindful of the gospel is the way that you make sure? There's a whole bunch of ways to answer that. Um, one is the text I referenced already, being mindful of the body. Um, that, that breaking bread uh, is a fellowship activity. It's not something, like the practice wasn't that, they, they, that the early Christians, each every time they had a hot dog from the hot dog stand, they viewed it as communion. No, they gathered to break bread. Um, and I'd have to look actually at the, at the grammar of the Greek, but I have a feeling that the you there in the, every time you do this, you, you, you declare the Lord's death till he comes. It's probably plural. I'd have to verify that, but I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it being singular. Um, it's, it's addressed to a church. And the other thing, even just with fencing. That's part of it. It's, it's, this letter is addressed to a to church. To a church, yeah. When you gather, and, yeah. and that's broader, what's going on in Corinthians is we see a bunch of things when you gather together as a church, this is what you are to do yeah. in 10 to 12, 10 to 14. And so uh, it's all about church order. Mm -hmm. So when you gather as a church, what are the things that you do? And that's a lot of the emphasis of what the text is saying. And Here's so you also have to look at the context of what's even being yeah. talked about. Would exclusion from the Lord's Supper be possible if Christians were, were uh, permitted to take it alone? Because who would excommunicate themselves? I think I've heard like, the reasoning of, like, if you're in a family and you have, like, yeah. your head, your husband, depending. Right. And the question, I think one of the questions that, that I wrestle with all the time is, can, do I have any business giving communion in a context where I have no business denying it? Like, has, has God given me as a parent the authority to deny communion from my children if they misbehave or are unrepentant? And if not, then do I have any business giving it to them? Like, if I can't meaningfully fence it, can I actually give it? Which is why, to me, it's like, I'm, I'm going to do that in the context of a local church where the con God has given this membership the authority to decide uh, if somebody is not allowed at the table. That is not something, even Aaron and I don't have that authority as elders. That's something that the church does. And so if we don't have an actual church present where, where they could have the authority to say no to someone, then, then I, just, I just don't feel like we have the invitation to give it. Then it's unfenced. Yeah, I also think practically... Um, what, it, what would we be saying by taking communion on our own or within our own families? And uh, where would we see the scriptural warrant or command to do so? Like it would have been very easy, Ephesians 5, talking about all these things going on with your families. And when you take family communion, do X, Y, or Z. But that's never a way that the scriptures speak about communion itself. 
uh, in the same way that baptism is always the church affirming the individual, we, as far as we can tell, by your profession of faith and by uh, the way that you're living your life, we believe you are a Christian. The individual saying to the church, as far as I can tell, you are a faithful church that loves the Bible, trusts in Jesus, and is striving to preach faithfully. So then the church baptizes the individual as the individual submits to that local church. The same thing is what we see in communion. Right? Those are the two things that Jesus has given to the church, to fence. So then the same thing in communion is the individual. Uh, the church says, hey, we believe you genuinely can take this. We have no reason to believe from either your profession or your manner of life that you shouldn't be able to. And so we affirm that. The individual is then affirming the church as well. So those are the two things, really, that Christ gives as ordinances for the church. That's the way that Protestants, specifically Reformed Protestants, have always seen, viewed, and talked about the sacraments, is that they've been given to the local church to fence and to give. Can we triage the answer we just gave as well? So is this an issue yes. where if you disagree with Aaron and Matt, that you are definitely in sin and should be like not a, considered a non-believer? No. <laughs> yeah, because there's I different, have, there's different orders of, of these mine. things. I have friends of mine that are Reformed Baptists that have no problem with, um, they, they wouldn't do it in family worship, but they would do it like with uh, small groups. So groups of the people from the body together. Yeah, as, um, as like a portion of, as a portion under the auspices of, of the, the elders of the church. Yeah, so because the, the scripture, like we, we haven't given a verse that says thou shalt not That's right. uh, take communion alone, but I think that like what we've given is a faithful understanding of where the Bible points us. Yeah, and, and I, us have, I have, I remember when I was living in France, I was by myself, my roommate had left, uh, like he moved back to the States, so I was just alone a lot. Um, and I remember it was Easter and, and it was Good Friday and I watched The Passion of the Christ. I got some bread and some wine from the little like store down the road and I like had communion in my apartment by myself. And after I did that, I thought, I'm never doing this ever again. This is so dumb. I'm not with other brothers and sisters I'm, I'm not remembering corporately what Christ has done. This is kind of pointless. Like I could have just repented of sin, remembered the gospel, sung a couple of songs and gone to bed and then woken up and, and you know, gone about my day. And so I just remember this, like, I feel like this isn't right. And so for me, I think it's more of a personal thing where when we're together as a body, um, it is more meaningful, joyful, that's where the, those commands were given, you know, for the church defense. So I think for me, it's more of a corporate reminder of joy. So you can disagree with me. If you shared the gospel online with a Muslim woman in a very strict, closed, isolated part of the Muslim world. Yeah. And she came to Jesus. Yeah. And she knew that tomorrow her brothers and father were going to kill her. Yeah. Would you set up a Zoom call? with some other believers and watch her get baptized in her bathtub No, and walk her through virtual communion? I would not. No. No, because baptism is not necessary for salvation. Mm -hmm. Neither is communion taking. So I would affirm my sister in the Lord, hey, tomorrow you're going to die. 
<laughs> that just hit me. Yeah. Because this, I mean, it, this happens. Yeah. Like, I, I know of at least one case where well, I was talking to a, a lady published a YouTube two video. Two years ago with Johnny. He's not here. <clears throat> Uh, and that was him. He's the only Christian that he knows in his whole city. Um, but I wouldn't encourage him to do that, I think, because in his death, he's going to experience such a great and sweet communion with Christ that the first communion he ever has will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yeah, I'm with you. I wouldn't like be like, now that you're saved, this is what you have to do before tomorrow. Yeah. If I see the YouTube video where she says, I'm dunking myself in the bathtub because there's not a Christian within 10 miles who, will, who, would, who would have access to. And I'm doing this specifically because I want the world to know before I die. This is why I'm dying. I'm just going to celebrate that. Oh, me too. I would be like, praise the Lord. Yeah. 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 Some of my favorite missionaries, uh, uh, Hudson Taylor. Um, no, Adnaram Judson. Uh, Adna, Adnaram became convinced on the boat ride over to where he was going to be meeting uh, Hudson Taylor. Uh, Hudson Ta uh, uh, Burma. Who's in Burma? Well, he met him in Calcutta. He was in Calcutta. No, well, that was his son. There's a famous guy in Burma. Anyway, Adnaram Judson on the boat over became convinced of believer's baptism. Got to where he was going. And so did his wife, and so did two of their friends. Um, and so they, one of them unbaptized, baptized the other. The other one baptized him, and then they baptized their wives. <laughs> so they were baptized by an unbaptized individual. And I'm like, we're talking. I mean, you're there's baptized. No, there's no Christ, other believer though. on the continent. Yeah, you're the only believers. Uh, Subcontinent. So it's like, it like a really beautiful thing. So, and sometimes, you know, there's less than ideal things that we have in missions and in mission settings, and it's a very beautiful thing. Christopher Wold. Yeah, I think it's Hi. worth addressing, like, the, that there are just going to be situations that, like, are abnormal in missions context that don't, like, fit into, yeah. like, nice, nice, neat theological categories. Mm -hmm. In particular, maybe it might be worth addressing uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and like yeah. how he was baptized Here's water. just Why not? on the side of the road, yeah. which I think is used often more like a proof text for just like, you can just baptize whoever you want willy nilly, like, you know, get into the hot tub, like, or just odd, like informal things, but there is something to be said there. Do you have like anything to address there? Acts is just descriptive, like crazy. I think that yeah, it's this a history is book. Yeah. And, uh, and the early church was figuring out how they were going to do this. They had the Great Commission, and they had the, the model of the scriptures, and then the apostles were like, okay. Uh, the Holy Spirit was leading them and guiding them. Uh, Philip is especially interesting because here you have like an Ethiopian eunuch who's going to go to a different continent uh, and take the gospel, and he's like kind of on the job. And so, yeah, they didn't have... Um, a local church along the way that they could stop and get him plugged into. It was like he, he, pretty exceptional circumstances. Yeah. Um, not, that is not to say that you couldn't do that, but that uh, now that we actually have the complete New Testament um, and the established local church, it would be far better to actually say, hey, when you get back to Ethiopia, mm. seek out a local church and seek baptism. Yeah, I have friends of mine who did that exact same thing. They had a Christian, uh, a young woman from Japan, become a believer in Jesus. And she was going back to Japan like a couple of weeks later. 
And so they actually withheld baptism from her because they said, hey, you should get connected to a church in Japan and go back and get baptized, be an encouragement to them and allow that to be a win for the church in Japan. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, we're in contact with her. She goes, gets plugged into a great church in Japan, gets baptized. It's a great encouragement to them. She's been welcomed into that church as a Christian. And then they hit the ground run with discipleship with her and it is this beautiful thing. Now, could they have baptized her? Sure. Absolutely. Um, but they decided for the joy of actually the church in Japan, how much be more beautiful of a thing it would be for them as a church to do that. Um, and that woman said, yes, I think that's a great idea, and that would be a great encouragement. We should do that. And so... I think that's also a beautiful thing. And I'm sure there were Christians who, during COVID, had no access to a local church. Oh, a like thousand they just, percent. So, and oh, yet man. they're like, uh, we, are without, we yeah. are without the Lord's Supper. That's right. Or we have kids that want to get baptized. That's right. And the church has locked its doors. Yeah. And so can we gather with faithful Christians that we know are local church members? And yeah. Like, I'm not going to call them in sin for that. And neither would I invalidate that baptism. And I'm going to say, praise God for that. Yeah. yeah, for us too, as long as someone, even in baptism, uh, they are repenting of their sin, trusting in Christ and being baptized, that is, that's what we care the most about. Yeah. Like as elders, as we're like in conversations with folks who are wanting to become members, um, it's not necessarily, you know, the, was it in a church? Were you in a church gathering? Was it not by your Uncle Bob, who's a pastor in yeah. Milwaukee? Or was it, you know, yeah. as long as it was, isn't by like, oh, I got baptized by the Mormon church. I'm like, well, let's open our Bibles first. Who is Jesus? Uh, you know, like that's a different, it's a different conversation. Um, but if it's somebody in the family, then that's a, that's a different thing. What was your question, my sister? I'm not really sure how to phrase this, but it's kind of a follow-up of if this is something we do symbolically and we're supposed to do it with others viewing it, is there a particular way that we're supposed to respond to those who don't partake? Like, like unbaptized Christians? No, not necessarily for baptism, more for the Lord's Supper. Like, because it's publicly, are we then... Oh, if we, like, see somebody who's not... Yeah, I'd be like, is that oh, yeah. an invitation to have a conversation? For of, like, sure. Is that why we also do that? 1,000%. Okay. Yeah, because that would be a really great question. I think about my kids, even, like, as a dad. Uh, Lord willing, my kids will grow up and hear the gospel and believe upon Jesus. And then as they do, if we're together and they're not celebrating communion one Sunday, I'm going to afterwards be like, hey, man, what was up? I like, is there a reason why you feel like maybe you couldn't? Yeah. Or, or is your tummy just hurt? Like, what, like what's, yeah. what's wrong here, you know? And the same thing with one another as brothers and sisters. That's a really great question because then we might even be able to identify, oh, well, I'm actually believing something that's not true. Like, I need to be good enough in order to come and celebrate communion. And as a Christian, you're able to say, oh, dear friend, that is not at all true. You know, and then you're able to remind them of the gospel, remind them of what's true in Christ and be able to love them and serve them really well. And then if it's someone that you know that's not a Christian, that's also a really great time for you to talk with them afterwards. It's like, hey, I, I noticed you didn't have communion. Is it because maybe you're not a Christian and you don't actually have communion with God? Where are you at with Jesus after just hearing a sermon like that? And then, it, so it's also an ability to have gospel conversations even right after the service with these individuals that you know. So yeah, so it's very, 
corporate, for our corporate health, but also very evangelistic. So previously, Matt, you have uh, encouraged us to exercise prudence regarding baptizing our children. Like, yeah. don't, as soon as they, like, make a profession of faith, like, don't say, all right, let's, let's get you dunked as soon as possible. You're, like, exercising patience and prudence. So in that, how would you apply the same sort of mentality towards uh, baptism or to, towards the Lord's Supper and participation for children who might want to partake in it? Yeah. There are all kinds of different views on this. Uh, even within like our doctrinal camp that we're kind of in. Um, but I can just tell you how we've done it. And I don't know if that's considered advice. <laughs> Maybe you've done it differently. I don't know. Uh, it was something that I kind of had, I had no teaching on. I had to figure out sort of by the seat of our pants when our kids are old enough to go, I want that. And so hard and fast rule, communion is not for non-Christians. And then where the disagreement comes is what is a Christian and who decides. So, for example, you have churches that would be very much like ours that would actually fence a little differently than we would, where they would say, unless you have been baptized um, by a church, you shouldn't partake. Because they would say the church has the authority to decide who is and isn't a Christian. And they've been given that. So... And that, was, that would be based on, like, for example, the book of Acts, where you get baptized, and then you take the Lord's Supper, not the other way around, where baptism is the entry, and the Lord's Supper is the constant reminder um, and the mark of fellowship. And so I can, I'm very sympathetic to that position. Um, my particular view of the Levitical food laws, uh, dietary restrictions, m- moves me in another direction, <laughs> where... Uh, I see that, for example, in, in the garden, they got a command, and they got food. And it was, their res- it was the food where they were, they were like, what you eat or don't eat shows what you believe. And the same thing was true, I believe, in Leviticus, where they're told, you can only eat things, for example, that bring their food down, and then bring it back up again, chewing the cud. Um, insects, only if, not if they crawl along the ground, only if they go up and down. And then, and that's just one example of a category of the type of food where then there's the child pipes up and, and it's like, hey, when your son asks you, why do we do this? The only answer Leviticus gives is this one. Because the Lord brought us up out of the land of Egypt. So what they ate, the food that doesn't stay down but goes back up, is a reminder of their, the covenant that they're part of and the salvation that they have. And... And so I, all the way through, and then you get the new covenant, and it's like, hey, here's some new food to remind you of what covenant you're part of. So what you eat shows what you believe. And, um, and therefore, when I look at food, I see it as a reminder of the covenant you're part of, but also as a teaching tool. It's so accessible to kids. And so if I have a kid who's maybe not quite old enough to show what they would do if they had independent uh, use of the car, Right or or had access to maybe a bar or whatever where it's like what, is your faith really yours right um, are you mature enough to really know what that means maybe they're not ready for baptism yet right? maybe they they're not at the age where I can say okay this is really your faith and yet if I have seen that they can they've understood and can articulate the gospel that they they declare that it applies to me um, and then there's fruit in their life and I see repentance and I see interest in Bible reading. There's also a statement I'm making if I deny them communion, and I'm denying them a really concrete teaching tool. So that's where I've been, like, kind of on the fence with it. Um, 
and and so yeah, we've we've told our kids um, about the significance of it. They have had to kind of cross those barriers of you need to be able to articulate the gospel, repentance and faith in Jesus, and identify that this is for you, um, and then have nothing in your life that screams the opposite. And then it's like you you have to be able to explain the meaning and significance of communion to you, lest you eat and drink unworthily. So that would be a more permissive uh, take than most Reformed Baptists have, where they would actually use baptism and church membership sometimes even uh, as offense. But I don't know. That's what we've done. We've we've kind of just made sure. No, this is the hard and fast rule: is this is not for non-Christians, and then being lenient with. It it being as a teaching tool and not wanting to exclude little ones just be, just because they're not old enough to get baptized or mature enough. I shouldn't say old enough, mature enough to get baptized. Well, if they're not mature enough to be baptized, why do they think they're entitled to mature? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the pushback and I'm sympathetic. Yeah. But for example, I, well, I don't know. I don't want to talk too much about my kids, but I, I just will. think it's very possible Not about your kids. for a for a uh, seven year old or an eight year old to to in their own way articulate something that gives me every assurance of their salvation. Yeah. And yet, I just have seen even in my own family, uh, young ones like not my immediate family, but extended family, young ones who got baptized at seven or eight and then walked away. And if that's what my if that's what one of my kids is going to do, I would look at their life and go, "Are you sure?" buddy that you really want to be taking this because mm. like look at what you're look at what you're up to during the week or look how your confession has actually changed so if I'm if I'm honest I think that the the more fenced version is more consistent uh, and yet there's also that statement where like because we could also say unless you're a church member uh, you can't take communion right what church has evaluated your profession and are you in good fellowship with then we would be denying communion to Christians. Which I don't want to do that either. Yeah, I think a lot of it is is also trusting the spirit at work in our kids. I'm fairly sure I have a child that has become a Christian. However, this child is not yet to the point where they want to talk about it or come and approach and like say, hey, I think I'm ready to get baptized. You know, none of that yet. And so like, I'm just trusting that if the spirit really is at work in my kid, the spirit will grow my kid over the next couple of years in their understanding of those things to where he would be able to say, yes, I do really believe in Jesus and I trust in him. And... I, I want to make this profession of my faith so that it's not like because my daddy's a preacher or, you know, something like that. And so I also try to be very careful with that because I've seen lots of, I mean, like, like a lot of you, I saw a lot of people get baptized when I was a kid who grew up and, man, like if I could go back and say, hey, you should maybe wait a year or two and like, just really see if this is something you really believe to be true. You know, like, do you really trust in Jesus, especially when you're five or six? Like, if you just waited just a little bit, just a, like, would that be prudent? Yeah. But if someone, if, so, if I'm looking at a five-year-old and they're talking to me and they're saying, Jesus died for my sins, 
I trust him. I believe in him. I love Jesus. I'm going to say, well, by the profession of your mouth, and I'll talk to the parents, what's their life look like at home? Is there genuine sorrow over things? Like, what, what are you seeing as well? Because I want the parents also involved in that conversation and say, what's really going behind, behind the scenes of this five-year-old? Because I only see them here, and they're running around playing tag. So I, you know, uh, so where are they at? And then talking to the parents, and the parents say, no, yeah, genuinely, this is their life, and I, I really genuinely think they are Christians. Then as, as elders, we also like, okay, so we see this. Their parents who live with them see this. So why would we withhold from them water baptism when they're, when they're saying, I want to profess Jesus as my Savior and Lord and, and stand as a testimony of what he's done for me? Like, I'm not going to hold that kid away from getting baptized. Um, and so some kids, though, might not be there yet. They might say, hey, I do love and trust Jesus. I, I'm just not yet at a place where I'm ready for that um, would I withhold communion from them? No. Um, but would they go and have communion? I don't know. Uh, but I think that's conversations as a dad that I want to make sure I'm having with them, that I'm trying to disciple them really well. And if you're a parent, that's also your role within the life of your kid, is having some of those conversations, trying to peel back the layers of their heart and kind of explore where they're at uh, and realizing they might be okay with communion before they're okay with baptism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have no issues with that. And I think the, the core is we want to honor the Lord's Supper. We want to honor Christ in the Lord's Supper. We want to prevent abuse of the Lord's Supper. And the same so thing if you've baptism. got kids thinking of it as a snack, they should not come. <laughs> yeah, <that's> right. um, <laughs> the if you've got kids who haven't professed Christ and, and it's not real wine, of it, so it's they shouldn't come. That great. Any other questions on anything? Things that came to your mind? Oh, great. Um, firstly, a follow-up to uh, 1 Corinthians 11, the 28, 29, and 30, I guess. Um, with regards to um, bringing condemnation on yourself, um, I'll call myself a new Christian. Some would disagree just because where I'm at, but um, I've been a Christian now three years, baptized in the midst of COVID in 2020. And um, it was recently. Praise God. Yes. <laughs> Best decision. Um, it was recently brought to my attention, I guess, in the last couple of years, and about um, not taking the Lord's Supper if you're not a believer, and bringing, and then reading the scripture and bringing condemnation on yourself, because um, it was. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, so it was. I had like the communion when I was like 12 or whatever. So it was never really explained to me. So it's, this is sort of a two-parter question. So I guess by then I was bringing condemnation on myself, but now as a mother, without knowing about that verse, I was bringing condemnation on my son because he was also participating in it. So, I mean, I've been reborn, so, and I've repented of it since coming to knowledge of it. So, have, so that part, I guess, has been forgiven by repentance and, you know, believing. But for my son, you know, I, I even apologized to him and I brought it to his awareness, and now he's at least not doing it. But I guess my question is so, I've, is God forgiving of my repentance? doing that to him by, based on my ignorance of not knowing 
by still giving him the, you know, letting him participate in it until I was really aware of what I was doing. And then um, my second question is um, what you were talking about with early baptism. Mm -hmm. um, it's more for a friend of mine who I'm going to play this for her. So your answers are super helpful. Um, she was wondering, her daughter got baptized at a young age, like 15, 16, and then by 17, she ran away from home, kind of turned away from Christ. Her current, her husband um, is not a believer and has kind of turned her away from God. Like, they won't even have a conversation about God with, with her mom and whatnot, and she's like adamant, don't even talk to me about him. So my question is, um, when Jesus was uh, on the mountain with, or on the mount with the disciples and he was talking to them and they were like, well, how come these guys left? And he was like, if they, you know, if they left, that means they weren't of us. Mm -hmm. So I guess my friend's concerned that while her daughter got baptized at a young age, because she, you know, she doesn't doubt that her daughter had a faith back then, she's concerned does she still did she lose her salvation because she's in this current relationship that is tainting her view so yeah great questions thanks i think the answers we seek are actually both in romans 8 um and and so it begins there's no there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus and so we know that we are under condemnation anyway no matter what we do with communion if we're outside of christ and then we know that if we're a believer in Jesus, there is now no condemnation, no matter what you've done with communion in the past um, and how you might make a mistake around communion in the future. Um, there will not be condemnation on, on the day of the Lord uh, when he returns. He'll, he'll declare, he has declared you and, will, and he really means it, that you are perfect in Christ. That's right. And... Uh, and, and so that's the grid I would use is that um, I, don't, I don't know if your son knows and believes the gospel, but, but communion is, is probably just one of the things in his life. Um, like in all of our lives, we're all born in sin and we all need the Savior. And, and so it's not like, oh, he's, he's less likely to get saved now because he's more condemned or he's as likely or unlikely uh, actually, as unlikely to get saved as uh, as anyone, and yet God intervenes and shows His grace. Um, and so the key thing would be, I mean, yeah, don't keep giving Him Catholic Eucharist, but but aside from that, uh, just keep preaching the gospel and and. Uh, And that's, I mean, that's great because you don't want to be like doing things you know are against what the Lord has said. But also it's really important just to know he could, he could nail it on that issue. He'd just get, be perfect on the communion issue. And it wouldn't help him at all 
without faith in Christ. So that's like, that's the thing, especially as parents, that we put before any matters of obedience and righteousness would be, our, do you know, love, and trust Jesus in the gospel? Because that, that is the, the key thing. Um, yeah. And then, and then secondly, the other, the other question you had is at the, at the back end of Romans 8. Um, <clears throat> in verse <clears throat> 28. Um, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers... Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, which is a, a way of saying he has also brought them to uh, a blessed eternal state with a resurrection body, enjoying Christ forever, uh, enjo enjoying the, uh, the smile of the Father for all of eternity, um, the comfort of the Spirit for all eternity. And then it's like, okay, well, then who are those people? right? The people that are justified and then also glorified. And what this text tells us is that it's impossible to believe in Jesus and, and be covered in his righteousness and then have that ultimately disappoint you or you end up in hell. Yeah. That's not possible. She boiled it for daughter through the influence of her husband. Yeah. Has, you know, brought the same love to salvation. Right. Right, and, and I, I think that the, it, when we look on situations like that from the outside, we can go, oh, it looks like they were Christian. They even got baptized. They could articulate the gospel, but then, but then they, quote-unquote, fell away, are now living in sin, maybe died in that state. The thing is, God knows who's his and who isn't, um, and the reality is, if you put your faith in Jesus, you will be, by a curvy path or a straight path, you will be made into the image of his son that you might be one of the brothers, right? And, and so uh, if you have somebody who professes Christ, get baptized, gets baptized, walks away from the faith, lives in sin, they may come back and live uh, in accordance with their faith. They may, uh, they may not. I mean, just the ultimate test case, right? You put your faith in Jesus. Uh, you, you walk with him for a week. And then you fall back into old patterns for a week and you die in a car crash. Saved or unsaved. Right? Like, it's not my call to make. It's not our call as parents to make. But we just know that those who God saves are not disappointed with the gift and the new birth. It's not like you can be born again, unborn again, born again, unborn again. If you're born again, then the eventual result will be that you'll be glorified and get to share in a blessed eternity and in the meantime, the expectation, if you want to have any confidence in your salvation, the expectation is that you would grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. It is actually inevitable. But very often, people either profess Christ without being saved, or they profess Christ and are saved, and the, it kind of gets messy for a while. Uh, and the Lord knows these things we can't actually say for sure. Uh, and we're not asked to say for sure unless the person presents themselves for church membership <laughs> where, where we would just evaluate their life and say, is what you say about Jesus matching your life? Um, but yeah, those are kind of the, like, it, it, that is ultimately a mystery. You can't look at someone's life and say they definitely are or are not saved. But those are sort of the guardrails around it. We know that, that Jesus knows how to keep and seek 
all the sheep that are his, whether they're in the fold or wandering, he can bring them back um, if, if they're his. Yeah, I think for me, a great vocabulary with that that has been really helpful for me and others that I know um, comes from John 3, I mean, really the Gospel of John, talking about like when we become Christians, we're born again, now as children of God. So my question is always, well, can you become unborn or can you just die? Because if it's a new birth, you're born again into a family. Like my kids, they were born into our family. How do I know that? I saw it. I was there. Uh, They're born into our family. They can't be unborn. That doesn't even make sense. They could die or they could like try to rebel against me. Like when they're like 16 to 25 and just go haywire for however long, whatever. But they're my kid. And I know that because they're my kid. They were born into my family. And the same thing is sadly often true of what we see in people's lives. And so we often wrestle with the question, like, did they lose it? Whereas the way that scripture talks about it, it doesn't really answer that question that way because it doesn't talk about salvation in that way. It talks about that you've been born again, like you're in this family. And so being that you're born into the family of God, you can't be unborn, but you can live like a prodigal. Um, I see that happen a lot. Uh, my own family, family members of mine that for 10, 15 years just, and so I'm, so is my family member that I love, are they, because I remember, I remember being with them, I remember singing with them, I remember studying the Bible with them, I saw genuine faith. So were they just really good at faking that? And then I've seen them come back back to the Lord. And I'm like, oh, praise the Lord. But in that intermediary time, or if they die in that intermediary time, then the question is like, were they a Christian? Like my wife's dad professed faith, was baptized, spent the next 20 years of his life not wanting to talk about faith at all because faith was a very private thing and don't talk to me about it. And then he died of cancer. So my wife and I contemplating his death where is he? And so we don't know. But we do trust of what everything that Matt just said. We do trust that God is good. He's loving. He's sovereign. If they were his kid, he persevered them to the end. Not because they wanted to be persevered, but because he persevered them and kept them. Uh, it's kind of like a toddler that doesn't want to be carried, but you have to carry them because it's mucky outside and they're thrashing against you and you're like I'm carrying you to the car Uh, in the same way the Lord will do that with his that are his own and so I I in those questions have much more confidence in God and in his word than I do in the person and their profession in the moment because in the moment they might be really thrashing against God and I understand that. There have been things in my own life where I don't want those things to be true and have thrashed against the word of God too. And so I really just trust in what we know of God's word that if they are in Christ, then God will preserve them and persevere them. And if not, I pray that God would save them. And he might use my faithfulness of sharing my life in the gospel with them, that he might work in and through that to save them. And so I, and I think it's a human thing. We want to have a, a clear and clear, cut dry answer to the question but oftentimes (laughs) there is not 
And even even today, what the elder who uh, died at the trails in Salina died because he took his own life. It's the question they're asking. This elder who took his own life yesterday. So they're answering that question right now as a church. Okay, so today, where is he? And the, I have not listened to the sermon yet, but if I know my brother, which I do, I think the where that's going to land is trusting and resting in the sovereignty of God over salvation and that we live in a broken, fallen world where we will rebel against God in various ways. And this rebellion is no greater than this other rebellion and is no greater than this other rebellion. It would be no different than if you, as a Christian, flip somebody off at a red light because you were angry about something and then got smacked by a Mack truck and died the next moment. Like, well, the last thing you did was sin. So, well, thankfully, we're not justified before God by what we do, but why what Christ has done. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so we can have, even in really hard situations, greater confidence in God than even we do in people who are thrashing against the plans mm-hmm. and purposes of God. Which I think makes me as a Calvinist sleep very well, just very well, because I trust that he's going to save and he's going to redeem his people and he's going to persevere people because I can't do it. Yeah. And so I just trust that he's going to do it. And I trust the spirit at work in people, that God is going to persevere people. God is going to grow them. God is going to minister to them. God is going to help them. I can try to do everything I can do. I I can only do so much. You know, and that's where we're just so, it's like we grow up thinking that we become independent and we can handle things. And yet as Christians, we realize the older and older that we get that we are just babes who are dependent on our Father to do everything. So I think for me, I think it was just to cause us greater trust in God to do the things that he does. Yeah, and we can model that kind of faith in the meantime by not panicking about it. That's right. Yeah. Trying to make, make it happen by our own efforts. Um, dragging the person physically to church or something <laughs> or hounding them all the time. Pray for them. Yeah. And uh, if they're a Christian who's currently living in unrepentant sin, they need to hear the gospel because that will stir up a gratitude response um, and bring them back to that anchor that is their faith in Christ and go, ah, he doesn't deserve this. He died for me. And, and, and he, even he sharing your resurrection power. Sharing your own story and the things that you're learning yeah. and growing and walking through like, are really powerful in that because then it's not preachy. Right. It's very much like, Hey, can I just share with you? I, I actually kind of thought these things were true, and I actually recently come to find out that they're not. And rather, this is what the gospel is, or this is what I believe to be true. This is what God's word teaches. That is a much better way. It's like, it's like giving a, oh man, it's like giving a book on how to be a good parent to someone that you think isn't a good parent will not go over very well. You know what I mean? Here, I've got a book for you. And you're like, you get in, you're like, how to suck less. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the same thing can be true. But if you're like, hey, I'm actually learning some new techniques actually as a parent that have been really beneficial in the life of my kid this last couple of weeks. And the person is like, we'd say, what is, what have you done? My children are terrors. Uh, and then you're like, you just talk about things that you're learning, right? And it's a very different way of having a conversation 
then coming off as preachy or arrogant. It's very much just like, I'm just, I'm learning this. Um, now, it needs to be genuine, not forced. Like, I'm learning how to be a better spouse. It's by not sucking so much. You know, like, that, that won't work. But, but out of a genuine, like, God's growing you in various things um, can be a really great way to have some of those conversations with people that we love about topics that are hard to talk about without sounding preachy. We should probably wrap up soon. I don't even know what time it is. It's like almost five. I figured they'd all just leave and they got bored. Yeah. <laughs> but we can end there. We could. Yeah. Let's do. You can always call, text, email, go out for coffee with us or anyone around you if you have more questions. That's right. Why don't you pray for us? Sure. Designated prayer. Designated. So, Lord, we are thankful that we can um, not know everything, but that we know uh, what you've revealed in your word. And although uh, some mysteries remain, both with the incarnation, the, the, uh, the hypostatic union, uh, Christ's human and divine natures, and, and also just with our, our loved ones, uh, even our children, some of these really practical questions of how we operate as a church, uh, where you haven't very clearly spoken or very clearly revealed, Lord, I pray that you just increase our faith knowing that you are good, that you always do what is right, um, that you delight to show mercy over judgment, and, uh, and, and that we know that especially because we find in your word um, that, that, God, you were willing to even take on flesh, to take the punishment for the sins that, that we committed on yourself, to, that you are the only one who could uh, reconcile us to yourself, and you did at your own expense. And so... Um, wherever we might have lingering doubts or questions, uh, just confirm to us the kind of Father that we have, knowing that you are fully trustworthy and powerful, um, that you know all things. And in the meantime, God, I do pray that, uh, that each one here uh, would press into your word, um, even as we seek answers to our own questions, uh, whether it's reading more Bible or uh, digging into a systematic theology book or reading church history. Um, so thankful, Lord, that we will never plumb the depths of, of who you are and the riches of your grace and your trustworthiness. And so I pray that you just bless us with that confidence as we go in Jesus name. Amen.